No, I, li- I liked that do. It was more, I don't know, subtle. Yeah, kind of background. Uh, different forms, styles of music. Uh, turn in your Bibles to Psalm 8. Psalm 8. And uh, we'll begin with prayer as we continue to study prayer. Let's um, thank God and, and prepare our minds to have the attitude of learning His Word, which means concentration and also uh, putting aside from our hearts anything that would be on them that would distract us. And uh, just in humility and reverence, thanking God for His revelation and looking into His Word for it to speak to you personally and expecting that. And so with that, let's pray. Our great Father in heaven, thank you that you and you alone are the source of our joy and our life, and that through your love you are the source of our salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. You and you alone have provided everything for for us, and yet you have left us <coughs> or allowed us to live in a world that rejects you. We live in bodies that don't want to follow you, that we have to control, and we have much opposition, Uh, but you have revealed to us through your word and through life that you are greater and far stronger and better than anything that opposes us. And so you have given us through faith the ability to overcome, to push through, and to use prayer, our conversation with you to gain insight and strength as we seek you in your word and to find comfort and also to thank you and adore you for when we see how awesome you are. So we ask, Father, that through your spirit that we would find enlightenment in the words that we're going to look at today. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So as we uh, last time looked in the book of Psalms and there were Uh, Many more psalms, uh, several more, I should say, that we didn't have time to get to. Uh, Just so you know, this isn't going to be a study of the book of Psalms. This is is going to be a a section of our study in which we're going to learn how to use God's prayer book, which is the psalms. So we're going to learn how to use it, uh, but we won't have time uh, to go through them all. in, so we looked at the fact that, um, as Psalms reveals to us, something that the whole Scripture reveals to us, of course, and that's going to actually be true of everything, that um, when we're seeking God, we're seeking His glory. Uh, when we're praying, we're praying for Christ's glory, not our own. And this will keep us from uh, having improper prayers which are selfish or self-centered, and we can deceive ourselves kind of easily to that to to see that um, you know we that we can deceive ourselves into praying for things selfishly that we think are God's will uh, because we're kind of making it His will in our own imagination, right? Where God, I want you to do this or do that or give me this or give me that, and I you know and I'm I'm thinking that that's Your will. Uh, <clears throat> If, is it to the glory of Christ in my life? That will, 
you know, narrow things down and that will reveal to you that what you're asking for is proper. Uh, and, and so we have to keep that in consideration. Uh, remember, it's we live for his sake. We suffer for his sake. He said, pick up your cross and follow me. Lose your life for his sake, not our sake. Uh, God forgave us of our sins for his sake. You would think, well, that of all things, that should be for our sake. But no, God says that I've forgiven you for my own namesake. And uh, so we have to remember that. that When we're praying, it's for Christ's sake. And uh, then, therefore, the things that we desire for ourselves, asking for ourselves, seeking for ourselves, would be in line with what glorifies Christ. And so, uh, and don't forget, we're not glorified in and of ourselves alone, but we are glorified with him. Because he's glorified, we're glorified with him. Uh, And so, and that's something to remember uh, as much as we possibly can. All right, so we're going to take several themes that we find in the Psalms. That uh, in the Psalms they're prayed, uh, that God is praised for these things, that he's prayed to about these things in multiple Psalms. Uh, and but we're, certainly we're not going to be looking at all 150 Psalms. Uh, but there's certain themes. And I'm not gonna, we, we don't have time really to do all the themes. This is just, we're going to do a few and what I would love you to do and, and ask you to do is to don't wait. Don't wait till we're done with this study and then start praying psalms. Because when we're done and we move on, there's a great likelihood that you're just going to forget that. And, and, and this is something that probably none of us have done before. Uh, I would, of all the people, I mean, I know I didn't. That doesn't mean nobody has. But uh, for the most part, people I've been in contact with in our congregation. We haven't really done this. And it's something that we need to do. And so, so that we don't lose the reality of the application of this to our lives, we must be praying these psalms right away. What I would suggest, and what I'm applying this to myself, I wouldn't ask you to do something I'm not doing, is <clears throat> to take each theme and to focus on that for a few days and then move on to the next theme, which, you know, I'll give you the psalms where these things are found. The first theme we're going to look at is God as the sole creator. Uh, and many psalms summon him, summon us, sorry, to bring him honor, praise, and thanksgiving for the fact that he has created. Right? So, we, it's amazing how much we take this for granted that, um, you know, we, God's creation. We have all kinds of stuff around us, things that are beautiful, things that are needful. Certainly, there's a lot of things that are painful. And yet, but these are things are all that God has created. And we can overlook them really easily. Uh, the Psalms and, and other passages in the Bible entreat us not to overlook this and to actually look intently at God's creation, even though we're in a fallen world, in a cursed world. Uh, <clears throat> these Psalms are Psalm 8, Psalm 19, Psalm 29, and Psalm 104. And we're going to spend a class just on Psalm 104, uh, because I, I just adore that Psalm. And it's a, it's a larger one. Uh, we could probably get through, you know, if I move fast, we could get through the first three. But again, this isn't about, 
you know, where we find psalms that are short, we'll read through them all so we can get a good flavor for them for the whole thing. But I entreat you to do this also on your own. Uh, <clears throat> we Again, don't lose the reality of this. If, if we don't apply this now, after we move on, it's too easy to forget. Pray each type of psalm that we look at for a few days in a row, maybe a week in a row. And keep in mind uh, that in our last class, as I just said, that our prayers are always for the Lord's sake. So now we look at creation. Uh, praise of God for creation is a recurrent theme in the book of Psalms. Uh, <clears throat> if you think of it, and all of us have had this experience. I, mean, uh, I you know, Even young kids have had this experience. And how many times have you experienced where... In the midst of nature, you were floored by something, or something that you saw or something that you experienced in nature that just jazzed you, uh, excited you, floored you, awed you. Um, this morning, as I, and I didn't think of this, I mean, I, uh, I go drive by the basket slough uh, in my way in, and this morning, the sun is coming up, and there's this mist, and the mist just sits over the glens, and the the hills kind of stick out, and this mist, it almost looks like a fog machine is down there. It just hugs the ground. And behind it, where the sun was coming up, behind the clouds, and this beautiful bright orange, and I didn't notice it, uh, of course. And I thought, you know, I always love to look at it. But in context with these psalms, you know, did I think about God as a creator, and did it lead my mind to where the, that God has taken in these psalms, he, when we see these things, he wants our minds to be led to a certain place. Uh, and so, uh, think of something you've seen in nature that just floored you or moved you. God purposely made them. And even in the midst of a fallen world, there is under a curse they can't, the curse of this world can't hide the beauty that God still has here that he has made. It's, it's everywhere. Uh, and so nature is, however, not God, right? Uh, nature is a fingerprint from God, and that's why we cannot get lasting happiness from nature. So it's, we're all, if, we, if we took from this study, you know what, we should all get closer to nature and go hug some trees and go camping or whatever, go for a walk in the woods, uh, and, and that's going to give us happiness. It's not. Um, so <clears throat> the, the other, the pendulum always swings the other way. And to the other side are those that say, you know, I, only, I adhere to God's word. I don't care about nature. I don't care about any of that stuff. And that's too far to the other way. Uh, God uh, speaks of the glory and beauty of his natural world. It's certainly, you know, so why won't it give us happiness? You might think, well, it's temporary. You know, it's, it, it's not lasting. Uh, the good feelings that you get from nature are temporary. You know, the, the sunset goes away. Uh, even, you know, if you're... If you've seen anything beautiful long enough, you get used to it. All right, the first time I saw the Teton Mountains, I could not believe the size. I'd never seen anything that big, and it floored me. But then we were there for a few days. We camped out at Yellowstone, and, and by the time that uh, two or three days went by, I was like, oh, yeah, you know, I hardly gave them a second look. We get used to things. 
And also, it's immaterial. And that's all true, but the real reason why we do not, and no one ever will, get true or lasting happiness from nature is because it's not God. Uh, the lie of pantheism has attempted this, though. Pantheism means that God is in everything. So the tree is God, the air is God, the ocean's God. In fact, you're God, and when you die, you just get absorbed back into the big blob that is God. That's pantheism. Uh, and it, it, that is touched. Hinduism has a lot of that in it and other false religions. Uh, that's a lie. It's not true. God created the world. The world is not him. The world is separate from him. So God created matter. He is not matter. That God is spirit. <clears throat> now, out of his creation, God on the sixth day made his greatest creation. And it's you and me. And we say, wow, that's his greatest creation. Uh, Maybe he should have gone back into the workshop. But he created us, male and female, he created us in his image in Genesis 1.26. So God gave mankind, made us out of the dust of the earth, which means we're pretty much nothing but a mound of dirt and water, pretty much. Uh, But... God gave us a spirit. He breathed into man the breath of life. In Hebrew, the neshama. Uh, He gave mankind his spirit, meaning our spirit. But in the Garden of Eden, that spirit was perfect. Uh, Adam and the woman communed with God. God would come walking in the garden and they would speak with him. They fellowshiped with him. But of course, we broke the one command that God gave us and we fell. It it doesn't mean we lost our spirit. Mankind has to be body, soul, and spirit. uh, Or at least, you know, body and spirit. Whether you think it's... Anyway, I won't go there. Uh, It's a waste of time. I just wasted too much time talking about it right now. Anyway, so uh, it's that we're fallen. The body's fallen, and the inner immaterial part of us is fallen. But now, after Christ... And after his finished work, when we believe upon him, we're made new creatures. And so now we're given God's Holy Spirit, and we're made brand new. We're designed, the new creature is designed for holiness. The new creature is designed for the truth and righteousness. And so we are the creation that God wanted. And he did it. Uh, And so, as we see in Psalm 8, we're... He wanted us to rule. We gave up that rule. But through Christ, we gain it back. And in fact, in a much greater way. Um, And so, what is this to give to us? Uh, What it is to give to us is an an understanding that God has made you to be uh, one that he has glorified and one that he has made uh, wonderful. And you and I are to be wonderful. And we're to take pride in that. Not sinful pride, but pride in the fact that we, have, we are God's great creation. And when we look at the world around us and see these beautiful things, God says you're greater. Right? So remember when Christ said, consider the lilies, consider the birds, really he's saying consider nature. And he said, God takes care of these things. Are you not much more valuable than they are? And, and, of course, there's, you have to have caution here, but you have to have caution about every truth. 
that this could make us feel prideful. That, you know, I'm great and God has made me great. But if you think you're great apart from God's gift, and that, you know, it's really not you that's great, it's He that's great, but He's made you great, then where is your greatness manifested? In you manifesting the life of Christ, in your love. That's what makes you great. But it's His love, it's not yours. But when you're using it, you're awesome. When you have joy and strength and wisdom and compassion and forgiveness, and you're filled with joy no matter what because of Him, you're awesome. And that's, that's God making mankind awesome. Jesus Christ was awesome as a man. And we are to be just like him. God has made it so that we can be just like him. So, notice you know, uh, how Psalm 8 does this. Psalm 8, the title, whenever there's a title on a psalm, you want to make sure you read it because it, uh, sometimes it gives you insight into why the psalm is written. In this case, it's like directions for the musicians, so it doesn't give us too much insight. For the choir director on the getith, uh, uh, getith, something is a stringed instrument. It's, it's, we actually don't know exactly the origin of that word, but we can see this. It's a psalm of David, uh, and so this is one of David's psalms. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And his name, of course, means who he is, his character. Who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. So the first line is, your name is majestic throughout the earth. The writer of the psalm, David, concludes this or relates it to the splendor of the heavens. So this is likely the night sky and David as a shepherd in the wilderness of Bethlehem where there's no lights, there's no street lights or anything. So he sees a gajillion stars. If you've ever been in a dark space and seen all the stars, it is amazing. You don't get that in the city. Uh, and David sees that and he says, the Lord, and it, seeing all of that, that the time I can remember, I've been in a lot of places where I could see a lot of stars, but um, it, I drove through, not me and some friends drove through Death Valley at night uh, some many years ago, and we just pulled the car over and looked at the sky for about, I don't know, probably an hour. And, I mean, you couldn't even find constellations. I, I know a few constellations. I couldn't find them. Uh, There's just too many stars. But to see the Milky Way uh, in, like, obvious Milky Way and everything else, uh, just immense. You know, and you know, we know now how far away they are, that there are all these massive balls of gas and that are stars. And what does it make you feel? Well, if, I mean, if you don't feel insignificant under that, then you don't know what it is. And we feel insignificant. So, and so here David turns from this, the God who's majestic the heavens that are majestic to what? Infants. The next line is about infants and nursing babes. This means that they're newborns. And he says, in them, God says, you have established strength. Or David says, you, God, have established strength in infants. Now in verse 3, when I consider your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, 
What is man that you take thought of him? So in verse 3, he repeats the thought of verse 1. When I consider your majestic work, what is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than God. So we're not God and a little lower. I wonder if David's just being sarcastic because we're kind of like a lot lower. But uh, yet you have made him a little lower than God and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, oxen also the beasts, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the sea. And then it switches again. O Lord, our Lord, right? That's repeated. So back in verse 1, the very first line, O Lord, our Lord. Now he's doing this on purpose because this is a poem. His prayer is a poem, but you can see it's a prayer. He's saying, Lord, our Lord. He's praying. And at the end is the same as the beginning. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Now, a couple things here. Who can appreciate nature? You know, is your dog or your cat saying, wow, this yard is beautiful, you know? You know, the sky is beautiful. No, they, animals don't care. They they just uh, react. But mankind and mankind alone can appreciate nature. And the comp- we're the ones who can contemplate. And the reason why that's true is because we're in the image of God. If we can contemplate, God has made us to contemplate, and therefore we should contemplate. But who's doing it? In our world, amongst humanity. In our modern, especially in our modern world, where we're so distracted by a thousand different kinds of entertainment, who's sitting around contemplating deep things? Not a lot of people. Uh, in contemplation of the heavens, we feel our insignificance. Yeah, and But at the center of the psalm is the affirmation of power and authority. So here we are as insignificant, made from the dust, uh, compared, as we'll see, to nursing babes. And yet, we're crowned with glory and majesty, and all things are put under our feet, giving us authority over the earth. And that's the center of the the psalm, our human power and authority. But notice the two ends. In verse 1, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And in verse 9, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. They're like bookends, yeah? And so we're in the middle, and the Lord is our boundaries. The first verse, the ninth verse. And they must be taken together, or you miss the point. The point is that human power and blessing, which we have, is and has to be bounded, held in by the glory of God. And really, when we say the glory of God, it has to be our praise of God. Because when we praise Him, we understand Him, we love Him, we worship Him. And as David and other Psalms that we're going to see, as we look at nature, it's to take our thoughts to Him and then take our thoughts back to us. What has He done with us? What is He doing with mankind? What's He doing with me in particular? And... If I don't adore, we're going to see we have to adore him and praise him for it, his word, 
and praise Him for it. The fact that He takes care of my every need and I don't have to worry about anything. And praise Him for it. Now look, we, we still worry anyway and how stupid we are for doing it. The fact that we have the Word of God gives us boundaries. We don't have to sit around thinking up our boundaries and wondering if they're right or wrong. We don't have to worry about that. We've got them. We've got all that we need. We've got the instructions on how to follow the narrow path. We don't have to make up the instructions. We don't have to make up the narrow path. We don't even have to go looking for the narrow path. It's all given to us. And so it bookends, right? We praise Him. Praising God is called a doxology. That's a fancy word. It comes from the Greek word doxos, or dox, doxos, uh, which means glory. It's the word for glory. And doxology, which is a glory to God, gives dominion, and that's what we're given. Humankind is given dominion. Uh, dominion gives, by the doxology, us praising God. You know how many doxologies there are in the Word of God, both Old Testament and New? There, they just, at times, Paul will pause his letter and break into a doxology. You know, where he'll be writing a certain thought, and then he'll say, the praise and glory of God may to him be all the glory, to the King of kings and Lord of lords, who has all dominion. Right? He just, he puts it in there because... He's inspired. Are we inspired? And again, don't forget, this is about prayer. What if I'm not inspired? You know what you want to be is honest with God and honest with yourself. And go to him in prayer and ask him why and figure out why. But also, if you're praying this psalm, you're not going to probably think about the fact that I should praise God in everything I do. And that would that be a part of my prayer life if I weren't actually digging into these psalms? Would it be a part of my life when I look at nature if I weren't digging into these psalms? Uh, so uh, doxology gives dominion its context and legitimacy. Now, who prays God the greatest and the best would be our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, the fact that um, we were made to rule, and then what did we do? Well, we ate of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil, and we don't really rule the way that we should. Right? Humankind still rules. Say, over the sheep and over the fish and over the animals, we hunt them, we domesticate them, we, uh, we, you know, we blow them up and kill them, uh, whatever we do. We're, we have dominion, mankind has dominion over the earth. But really, does he? Because Jesus tells us that Satan is actually the ruler of this world, and he's the one truly pulling all the strings. And so, are we really ruling? Uh, well, you know, when, when the government passes an unfair law, and everybody in the country, hardly, almost everybody knows it's unfair, and we're, yet we're forced to do it. There's unfair tax laws, and we're forced to pay them. Uh, I don't know, you got to drive in a certain side of the road, which is a good law. But still, you're forced to do it. Uh, okay, you know, do we really rule after all? And it turns out that we don't, not in the way that we should. And that the world is in chaos. And Jesus warned us of this. There'd be wars and rumors of wars. 
The wars continue. When is there since that day that he said that? When has there not been war and multiple wars on planet Earth? There hasn't been a day of peace since then and before then. There's always a war somewhere and multiple ones. Uh, So the psalm, therefore, for us now, sets before us our utter weakness and our wonderful potential. And so, in prayer, and what you pray when you do this is up to you. Uh, I'm, I'm only given a bit of guideline here. What, what I, my goal in all of this is to kind of push you guys into this as I have been pushed into it. And to really see how marvelous this is. Uh, as I, I had not seen it before. To take a few lines of a psalm or the whole psalm, and to repeat it back to God in your own words, in prayer, and speak to him about what it is and what it means and explore that. And it it takes you to places that you wouldn't have thought of, and every one of these prayers are legit because they're in the Word of God. All right, go to Matthew 21. So, uh, utterly weak, absolutely, uh, and fallen. But what's our potential? The potential is great. You know, thanks to our Lord and Savior. And so, as we pray, we pray for greatness, but with humility. You know, to, to the Greek-speaking world, greatness with humility, or which is really the word agape. Agape love is a word that was not used by the Greeks hardly at all. The, the, first, um, the first literature that used the word agape in any amount is the Bible. It's the, the New Testament, I mean, is the first uh, literature to use it. Um, it, was, it was a word that existed before the Bible, but uh, it wasn't used by the Greeks hardly at all. So look at Matthew 21:14. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple. This is the last week of our Lord's life now. This is of his first advent. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done and the children who were shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. Now, Hosanna is a word loosely translated. Really, literally, it means save us now. And what the children are really saying is that this is the son of David, which to the Jews meant Messiah, and Hosanna is save us. So they're claiming him to be the Messiah and also to be saving them, and this is from the mouths of children. And they became indignant. Now, who became indignant? These are the chief priests and scribes. These are the grown-ups in the room, so-called who have power and strength, and they study quite a lot. And they became indignant and said to him, Do you hear what these children are saying? In other words, are you getting this? This is blasphemy. You should, in other words, tell them to shut up. And Jesus said to them, Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes you have prepared praise for yourself? And where is this from? We just read it in Psalm 8. 
And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany to spend the night there. Now, I, I read the last line because right after this in Matthew's Gospel, and you could read it there, is that Jesus curses the barren fig tree. He goes to Bethany. He comes, Bethany's like, uh, I don't know, a few hours walk past the Mount of Olives. It's only about five miles away, four to five miles away from Jerusalem. And that's where Lazarus and Mary and Martha live. And he's staying there. And then Jesus comes back the next day, and he's hungry. On the way back, he's hungry the next day, and he goes up to a fig tree. And the fig tree has leaves, but it doesn't have any fruit. And he curses the tree, and the tree withers up. Now, the reason why this occurs in the very next day is because Israel, like the fig tree represents Israel, and Israel has no fruit. They have leaves, they, they kind of put a show that they're healthy and that they have fruit, but there's no fruit there. And so, but who has fruit here in this passage are these children. Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have prepared praise for yourself. Uh, so, God can make, and this is the point for us, when we're praying and we actually have these thoughts uh, that come from these psalms. God can make fruit out of the mouth of infants. God can make fruit. God can do anything from anyone, the weakest of us. He can do anything if we have what? What do the children have that the chief priests and scribes don't? It's simple. They have faith. They have faith in who Jesus Christ is. So if we see this, if we're praying for strength or wisdom or victory, or getting uh, overcoming that which oppresses us. See, it's sin, an area of sin, a person, a situation, something that's dragging us down, some oppression, something in the world, how this psalm would keep your prayers proper. Meaning, where does my strength come from? Do I have to strengthen my resolve? Do I have to strengthen my mind, my intellect? Do I have to strengthen my will? Well, no, what you have to strengthen is your faith. And that's it. God from infants can destroy his enemies. So sometimes when I'm praying for strength, I'm thinking, well, God, you've got to make me stronger. And it's subtly false. It's, and it, you know, in a way, it's true, but we have to, see, the psalm helps us with the subtle truth. If, I, if I'm thinking I want strength for myself, I might think to myself, well, I'm, you know, God's going to make my resolve stronger, my will stronger, but really what I need is my faith to be stronger. That's what I need. And then, by faith, God will do with me who has basically the strength of a newborn child. God will do with me amazing things, which he has said, crowned me with glory and honor. So how this psalm would keep your prayers focusing on where strength lies, and it would not matter at all in how strong or smart you were in and of yourself, but on God who has mercy. God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the wise, the mighty. He does not need to use powerful people or eloquent speakers or you know, the people that the world consider to be prominent and beautiful and influential, he doesn't need that. 
You know, we, we can get mixed up in this and think, all right, God, you've got to make me a better, more eloquent speaker, or you've got to make me a more powerful, attractive person to the world. And he says, no, I don't. I don't have to do any of those things to you. You need more faith in me. And so that's why in these Psalms we're given nature. Because as David sees, it's all around us. The strength of God, the mightiness of God. Right? The, the depth of, why does God put us on this tiny little planet and make the universe just infinitely huge? As he's revealing to us the size of himself. You're little and I'm big. That's how it is. And, and yet we can get out of our cars and walk into our house. Uh, you know, I, I think about it, this um, compartment, I can't even say the word, compartmentalized life in which we get up, we do this, and then we do that, and then we get in the car, and then we go there, and our life is car with concrete and steel on the, you know, wherever we're driving, or if you live on a dirt road. Uh, sorry. <laughs> Uh, and, and then, you know, and then we go to work, and then we do this, and then we do that, and then we get on the car again, and then we come home, and are we ever opening our eyes and looking around? God wants us to. Behold the heavens. Just look up. Uh, when you go out in the day, if, you know, we, we're not going to see the sun for a while. It's still there, though we don't see it here in Oregon, probably for another, like, six months. But, uh, you know, it's, when we do see it, as we'll see in Psalm 19, David relates the, the faithfulness of God in bringing the sun every day to the faithfulness of his word. And can we get to a place that when we look up at the sun, we think about the revelation of God and think of him and his revelation to us and his, him with us? <clears throat> That's such a bad thing. And so, uh, Psalm 8 praises the name of God and his gracious act to humanity as the crown of his work. <clears throat> and because we messed it up, uh, and we all know this, uh, to study this, you could spend a lot of time studying this, this psalm or any of them, really. But uh, we don't rule as we should. The world is in chaos, but the real ruler of the world is not us anyway. I mean, we messed it up. And Satan is the ruler of this world. But the New Testament tells us how this plan is going to be fulfilled. Now, Psalm 8 doesn't tell us about the one true king. It just tells us about humanity. But in the incarnation, the Son of God took on mortal flesh and was made for a little while lower than the angels, becoming the second Adam and never ceasing to be divine. He has accomplished the first part, salvation, and the new covenant of spiritual blessings for all believers. He has accomplished that through his cross. He has done it. But he will return to accomplish the second part, and to put all enemies under his feet. It's the most repeated verse. Psalm 110, verse 1, is the most repeated quoted verse in the whole Bible. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Son of God will return to complete that. <clears throat> and in Psalm 2, sorry, in Hebrews chapter 2, Psalm 8, crowned with glory and honor and made for a little while lower than the angels, 
is actually attributed to Jesus Christ. So, where we are in Psalm 8, mankind, in the New Testament, Jesus, so we're kind of moved out of the way, and Jesus is put in our place. And he is the one that now rules, and we rule with him. He is the one who is glorified, we're glorified with him. He is the one who is king, we rule with him. He has accomplished it. And so all of that is in this little psalm. I mean, it's really the redemption plan for all of history. The creation of man, the fall of man, the redemption of man, and the destruction of God's enemies are all here. And David ties it to nature, the creation. If God and has, if God created all that is around us, he is powerful to accomplish all that he desires. So, if I were to pray, you know, what would I pray here? And I just, I, I read through this today again, and I was like, well, let me jot down a prayer. Our Father in heaven, holy and righteous, your power and, wis- <clears throat> your power and wisdom has made all things that I enjoy. Your grace has made me in your image, and you have crowned me with glory and majesty and authority. Yet I am nothing alone. Your strength flows through children who by, who, by faith, praise you. And I need that strength. May I never be prideful to think that I can do anything without you. Help me to be humble and bless others in my life with the same knowledge that together we might be one in you. Help us all to enjoy your creation all around us and get our eyes off ourselves to take into our souls the work of your hands. To you alone, Lord, be the glory. Amen. Go to Psalm 19. Now, Psalm 19 is a classic presentation of divine revelation in two places, in nature and now in his word. So, this... In all of, there's four of these Psalms, uh, 8, 19, 29, and 104, that speak of creation in relation to different aspects of God, or God's revelation, I should say. <clears throat> and uh, this is a classic rep- uh, presentation of God's divine revelation, and what its intended effects are to be, are mentioned here as well. So Psalm 19 speaks of the splendor of the movement of the heavenly bodies, but also with relating them to God's law, and especially the sun, uh, S-U-N. All those stars you see out there are are, uh, uh, suns or stars of different types. (coughs) Excuse me, but the the one star that means the most to us is our sun, Uh, and it has the most effect on everything here, on us Uh, When we get up and when we go to bed, the food that we eat, uh, life itself, photosynthesis, and on and on and on, the heat of the world, uh, and the seasons, and so on and so so forth. And this is why the sun was worshipped in the ancient world uh, as a god. So we'll see here that David, with a bit of tongue-in-cheek, it's not the only time he's going to do this, is he's going to present Jehovah, or Yahweh, as uh, one who is, stands in the place of the false gods. 
And uh, it's, it's pretty neat how he does it. <clears throat> Psalm, one, uh, Psalm 19, sorry. For the choir director, a Psalm of David, the heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanses declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. And so what does he mean here is that he says, well, first off, the heavens are telling of the glory of God. Their expanse is declaring the work of his hand. So there's telling and declaring. And then in verse 2, the day, <coughs> the day pours forth speech and the night reveals knowledge. So we have telling, declaring, pouring forth, and revealing. Telling the glory of God, the work of his hands, pouring forth speech, revealing knowledge. But then in verse 3, he says that we don't hear a peep of it. We don't hear anything. There is no speech, there are no words, no voice is heard. Well, of course, the expanse, which he means here, the heavens, they don't speak to us, yet at the same time they speak to us. And, <clears throat> and therefore, we have to have ears to hear. Uh, and again, from nature itself, from the heavens itself. And that's what the scripture here in Psalms is training us to do. So he says in verse 4, Their line has gone out through all the earth and their utterances to the end of the world. In them he has placed a tent for the sun, which the tent would be the, the, uh, our solar system. Well, for us, uh, you know, the, the biblical writers do not write from a heliocentric viewpoint, meaning they do not write about the sun being the center of the world, of the solar system. They write about, they're, they're uh, geocentric, so they, they write about the earth being the center and the sun moving. So, and a lot of people have used that to say, well, look, see, the Bible's not scientific. But <clears throat> from the viewpoint of the writer, that's exactly how it looks, and God doesn't care to tell them at that time uh, say, hey, guys, by the way, the sun's in the middle and the earth is spinning, and that's why it looks... He doesn't care about telling them that, you know. So anyway, <laughs> their line has gone out. So he's made a tent for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. Now, what, is, what does a bridegroom look like when he's coming out of his chamber? Well, he's excited. He's getting married, and he's anticipating... Right? This is the night of his wedding. He's very anticipatory, and he's very excited. <clears throat> it rejoices as a strong man to run its course. Again, you shouldn't miss the imagery here. As a strong man running the course as someone who is excited to run and excited to win and also proud to reveal his strength. And those two, the bridegroom and the strong man, are attributed to the sun. Its rising is from one end of the heavens and its circuit to the other end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. And what does that mean? That every single person is influenced by the sun. Right? There isn't anyone anywhere who isn't influenced or, or feels the heat of the sun. <clears throat> and now, from verse 7, there's an abrupt change. It's so abrupt that some people think that it was written by two different people, but that is just silly. The, the point is the abruptness is on purpose. Uh, it's on purpose to show a grand distinction between what is awesome about God in the first part and what is more awesome in the second part. And in the second part, we have the law. 
verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is pure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord is the sorry, the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. And notice in uh, two, four, six lines, seven, eight, and nine, that different aspects of the law are recorded here and different benefits that come to us. And these are things that we should focus on. The words, we, you know, we can buzz by the words, not read the words, I don't know, uh, and, and not get the, the meaning. Each individual word here is of extreme importance. And, and this is what I encourage you to do in prayer. And look, you can blow right by these, I, you know, I'm not going to know, God, God will know. But <clears throat> you're robbing yourself of the meaning of these passages that God has written for you. And if you miss them, and you miss out. Restoring the soul. How many of us need our souls to be restored on a, on a continuous basis? Making wise the simple. Now just read the end. Reading the, the benefit parts to us. Making wise the simple. How many of us need to be wise? Who are, and we're all simple. Rejoicing the heart. Who doesn't want rejoicing in their heart? Joy. Enlightening the eyes. Being able to see. Enduring forever, the fear of the Lord is clean. The judgments of the Lord are true. They're righteous altogether. Enduring righteousness. And this is all promised from what? The law of the Lord. Uh, the law of the Lord here would mean exactly, that's why in your New American Standard, if you have that, it's, it's a small case L. It's not a capital L, which often means the Mosaic law. But the law of the Lord refers to all Scripture uh, in this case, which for us would mean everything, including the New Testament. So, in verse 10, he says, They, which are all of these things about the law, are more desirable than gold, yes, than much, yes, than much fine gold. <clears throat> so, in verse 10, if I'm in prayer, or about to pray, the contemplation of this, because, I mean, who of us are absolutely immune from the allurement of money? or more money. And here we see that, you know, it's something that we could deal with in our prayer lives. And uh, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb, meaning sweeter than anything in life. <clears throat> and that would be anything that allures you away from God, any kind of sin that is alluring, which all sin is alluring. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Equip me of hidden faults. And this now in verse is addressed directly to God. Acquit me of hidden faults. This is again a part of our prayer. Jesus said, forgive us our sins. Or forgive us our debts and our iniquities. Forgive us our sins in the Lord's prayer. And here we're seeking the God to, to do what? To, to reveal to us what our errors are. In verse 12, who can discern them? On my own, I cannot. But with the law of the Lord, I can. 
If I'm honest with myself and honest with God, and the psalmist here is, David is, acquit me of hidden faults, it means that he really does seek with God to have the desirable result. Now, the desirable result of the psalm, of the revelation of God, is that we live in a way that pleases him. If we're learning God's word, as here is depicted as the great, the son that touches everything and is everywhere, is like a bridegroom. The bridegroom is the word. The bridegroom is the son, is the word. The bridegroom is the one he's excited, he's anticipatory. He can't wait to be with his bride. And that's what the law is. See, the law is made personified here. And, and it's, and of course it would be. The word of God is alive and powerful. It seeks us like a bridegroom seeks its bride. It touches everybody like the sun's heat touches everybody. And like a strong man in a race, it wants to win us. It's proud of itself because it's strong. And it wants to win us. It wants to conquer us. And it wants to also be with us like a husband is with a wife. And here's and, and the, the result is, and if the, if the Word of God doesn't have this result on you, then that's you have to reevaluate what it is that you're doing. But uh, so he says, who, uh, verse 12 is, starts the result, the proper result. Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. Also keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me, then I will be blameless. What? My sins. Keep me back from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me, then I will be blameless, and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart, here meditation referring to, just like it did in verse 1, meditation on the law. I mean, uh, Psalm 1. Remember, Psalm 1 was the introduction. Who was the strong tree? Who was the blessed man who didn't walk in the ways of the wicked? It was the one who meditated on the word of God day and night. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. It's this gorgeous, gorgeous psalm. Uh, <clears throat> so, again, the son is like a bridegroom. We'll have to leave it off here. We'll, we'll pick up a couple more psalms tomorrow. Uh, the son is like a bridegroom and a strong man. It touches every person with its heat. The bridegroom coming out of its chamber is filled with joy and anticipation. The strong man runs his course. Who runs his course is proud to show his strength and to win. So is the law, the scripture of God. The word of God is proud and ready to win, to win you, to win your soul. But we have to let it to accomplish all of God's good purposes. And it is joyful and anticipatory for those who will receive her, her meaning the word. The word of God, therefore, will fall upon every person. Whether the people accept it or not is up to them. <clears throat> so we have three distinct parts here, just to summarize it. The contemplation of divine revelation in nature. And really, in both of these Psalms, and we'll see in the others, we are to see God in nature. This is not, you know, it, it, God doesn't actually make it an option. He says, look, I'm there. See me in it. I put it all around you for that purpose. This God doesn't do anything without purpose. See me in it. See my faithfulness in it. See my law in it. 
Look around. Contemplate it. And don't think you're too busy for this, because you're not. Reflection on the value and the benefits of God's written word, and then seeing its very real result. See, at the end of this psalm, David turns to prayer. He prays for cleansing. He prays for preservation. He prays for overcoming his sin. And therefore, the Word, which reveals the great God who has made this universe and wants to have a relationship with us and wants to conquer us with His Word, when we realize that, the, po- the perfect result is that we want to live a life that pleases Him. And we have all of this, the flesh, the sin, the world, ourselves, all in the way. And as we, we seek God in prayer to find, through His Word, through His Spirit, and in our prayer lives, to communicate with Him, about how it is that we ourselves individually can overcome. So, God's word, the faithfulness and power in God's nature is the same as God's word. And the word has its designed effect. Our desire to overcome sin and to live in peace with the creator. And so, as we'll see in uh, the next psalm, there's a storm, Psalm 29, there's a storm that blows through, uh, and it doesn't go through uh, Israel, it goes through the way north of Israel, and up there, there's a storm god that they worship, his name, you've heard of him, he's Baal, they called him Hadad in uh, in Syria, he's actually a storm god. But then we see a storm rolling through that part of the world, and it's not the storm god, it's God. Uh, Here we see the sun that was also worshipped by many polytheistic pagan peoples back in the ancient world. The sun is the creation of God. It's not God, it's the creation of God. So within this, right, is the refutation of those who worshipped nature. Right? Because they had a god of the sun, a god of the sky, a god of the sea, a god of uh, agriculture, a god of uh, fertility, a god, and on and on and on they went, a god of wine and so on. And yeah, God, what's revealed to us is, look, here's God's creation in all of these things, and for us to see God in them, but to avoid, which is you know, kind of an underlying thing in each, in many of these, is to avoid the worship of those things, thinking that, well, if I get into nature, that the nature itself is going to give us happiness. It is not. It is the revelation of God in nature that is going to uh, get our minds on God's revelation and it's the revelation of God that is going to fulfill our souls. All right, let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word and thank you that you guide us and provide us through this prayer book, the Psalms, to Uh, be guided in our prayer life with you. And I pray, Father, that we in our congregation would use these psalms and use this method to speak to you. It's not the only form of prayer. We know that. But it is a form of prayer that if overlooked, we will miss out on much of what our communication, our conversation is with you. So we ask, Father, that through your Spirit, each of us would be inspired to do so. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.